Yes, when you're actually leading communion, you're sort of trying to multitask and to think, am I doing it the right thing? Is this the right time to say that? And should I... What's happening here? And are the people ready there? And you're trying to micromanage and coordinate and you don't get the opportunity to really prepare your own spirit. And uh, it's a struggle that I have had in, what, ah, uh, 40 years of ministry. So it's just lovely being part of of, of the receiving of God. Would you turn in your scriptures, please, to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read a selection of verses as on the screen. And then I'm going to ask a question. What is life? So Genesis chapter 2, commencing to read from verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is the word of God. What is life? What is life? Anyone got a definition? Well, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, in first service, there are a couple of people there in their 90s, and one lady is 100, 
soon to be 101, um, they remember the early part of the 20th century. In the early part of the 20th century, there was an international science forum that was held. You know, science was really starting to um, find its own in the world. We were moving out of mysticism and, and more into to science. And one of the questions that people were being asked, if scientists were working on the human body with new drugs and medications and all this sort of stuff, if we were working with the body, knowing the, how it worked and how it functioned, then they asked the question, what is life? How do we define life? This was before penicillin. And these doctors and scientists from all over the world gathered together and they discussed, I don't know for how long, but it was a, quite a few days, they discussed what definition can we give to life? And in the end, they came up with a definition of life that had seven points. If an organism exhibits these seven aspects, then they would be considered to be living, to have life. Things like respiration, able to breathe sort of thing. Things like uh, able to reproduce. Those, and there were seven, seven items that they came up with. That was fine. They were all happy. They defined life. Only a couple of years after that, science discovered a new organism. And they've called it the Rickettsi. The Rickettsi is an interesting organism because it only exhibits four of the seven definitions for life. And so the question was asked, if it only exhibits four of these things, is it living? Well, actually, the Rickettsi does respire and it does reproduce. I think mobility was another one, that it has mobility. Um, the Rickettsi only exhibited four of the seven. So the scientists had to ask themselves, is this organism alive? And they determined that it was. So it threw their initial attempt of a definition of life out the window. And then, since then, they have discovered another organism and it only exhibits three of the original definitions for life. So science has had great struggle in defining what life is. And for those who are in school uh, or those who are teachers, go and talk to your science teacher colleagues and ask them what is a definition for life and then watch them struggle. <laughs> because science does not, even today, have a clear definition for life. Well, over the past few months, 
I've been occasionally speaking or focusing on the role of the Holy Spirit in the work of building the church. And having said this, in some quarters of the church universal, there is much confusion, like the scientists have their confusion about life, within church circles there's much confusion about the person and the nature of the Holy Spirit. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? And there have been church councils and there have been church forums and this has been debated and discussed. Some merely see the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force, an energy, uh, much like with Star Wars, may the force be with you. Uh, in more liberal aspects or liberal circles of the church today, that's a very common understanding of the Holy Spirit. They call the Holy Spirit an it rather than he or she. In other circles of the church universal, they see the Holy Spirit as an indefinable, in other words, it can't be defined or expressed, it just is, an indefinable expression of life. Like many refer to Mother Nature and whatever that means. Again, for those who go to school, ask your teachers, what is or who is Mother Nature? And watch them go, oh, well, well, blah, blah, blah. The best they will probably say, well, it's, a, it is, it's an expression that we use for the life cycle of plants and animals, which doesn't really tell you much either. Within the Christian universe, uh, universal church, still others see the Holy Spirit as merely an appendage or an add-on to God. You know, someone or something to do the will of God, much like the heavenly angels occasionally are told to go and do the will of God. So the church often has debates about this. And as we read and study the Bible, we begin to gain a clearer picture of the true nature and identity of the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of going to church councils, though. You've got to read the Bible. It's in the Bible that God has revealed to us who the Holy Spirit truly is. And the first thing that we learn is that the Holy Spirit is not, is not a vague, ethereal shadow, nor an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is, a, is an active and vital presence of God himself with us. The Holy Spirit and God are not two separate entities. They are one and the same. One and the same. God with us. And as we read in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, the psalmist wrote these words. This is 3,000 years ago this was written. 
Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The psalmist, after all the prayerful reflection, came to understand the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, the Holy Spirit is the full, indivisible expression of God in that the Holy Spirit thinks and has knowledge and understandings. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 is your reference. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Ephesians chapter 4.30 is your reference. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. And the Holy Spirit makes decisions according to the will of God. They are one, their mind is of one. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 11 is your reference. The Holy Spirit is in absolute unity and integrity and oneness with God. That's what the scripture reveals. Which makes you wonder why these church councils have so much problem. The Holy Spirit is also the giver and the breath of life. Consider what we read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. We read these words. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Life is a gift from God. Continues on. And man became a living being. This amazing gift of life is a privilege that has been granted to us by God himself. God is the author of life and we should not treat life as if it is a right. We should not abuse it and disrespect it and we should not live it lightly. Life is a gift from God and there's the definition that hopefully one day the scientists will come to realise when they have resolved all their conflicts they will simply say, life, the definition of life, it is the gift of God. I kind of like that definition. It is the activity of the Holy Spirit of God that has brought life to all creation. The animal world as well as the plant world and everything else in between and beyond. We only need to read Genesis chapter 7 verses 15 and 22 to see how God himself has the ultimate 
authority over all life. Verse 15 says, And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. Even the Riketsi would have been there. And in verse 22, All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. That was prior to the flood. Yes, the breath of life gifted to us by the Holy Spirit is more than merely the activity of osmosis, that is, with the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. Life is more than that. In the Bible, we learn that this breath of God is the Ruach Elohim. Have you heard that expression before? The Ruach Elohim. That's the Hebrew for breath of life. And in Job chapter 33, verse 4, we again read of the life-giving quality of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Truly, truly the Holy Spirit of God is more than a wind that is a movement of air. The Holy Spirit is life-giving, restorative, enabling those in whom he dwells to understand and know from where this ruach, this breath of God comes. It is through God's Holy Spirit that we've been given the power of reason and understanding in which life is decidedly more than merely the capacity of respiration, growth, reproduction and functional activity. Life is more than that. It is through God's Holy Spirit that we are enabled to know and respond to God himself. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the gathered believers of the Lord Jesus, they experienced a profound filling of the Holy Spirit that enabled them to engage with life in a way they had never understood before. The disciples were filled with a courage, a boldness and a determination that overcame all their fears and their apprehension. Truly, this was life-giving because it opened a new dimension and purpose to each of their lives, free from the ravages of intimidation and oppression. These men on that day of Pentecost, came alive. And following the events of that Pentecost, thousands of people responded to all that God was doing in their midst. Lives were transformed and the message of new hope and new life in Christ Jesus spread throughout the then known world and beyond. Even as far east as India, and as far north as England. And of course, in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch meeting Philip by the roadside, it spread south even 
into Africa. Wherever, wherever people went, they took the good news of the Lord Jesus with them because they had the life-giving spirit abiding. Brothers and sisters, as we read, as we study, and as we come to know the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our midst today, how can we dismiss his power and presence with us with glib expressions like, well, may the force be with you or references to Mother Nature? To use those expressions to talk about the Holy Spirit, I believe, is sin. We sin against God if we seek to reduce the identity and the authority of the Holy Spirit to these abstract and meaningless expressions. The Holy Spirit is God with us, giving life. It is through the presence and life-giving activity of the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to connect with God Almighty in prayer and in meditation and step out with confidence and assurance to fulfil the tasks that have been appointed for us in Christ Jesus. Our whole Christian life is subject to the presence and empowering of the Holy Spirit. We only need to read the words of the Lord Jesus as recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 18. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we only need to compare this with similar calls in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, and John chapter 20. Many times Jesus issued the same call and the same command to his disciples and those calls and commands he issues to you and me today. We are to be his witnesses but not in our own strength because our own strength fails. We can only truly fulfil the command of Jesus in our life by asking the Holy Spirit to day by day empower and equip us to do his work. Brothers and sisters, we can be in no doubt as to the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit today. His work is to empower and to embolden all believers, all followers of the Lord Jesus to the work of God in spreading the good news of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, once we come to a fuller understanding and a better appreciation of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, what are we now to do? And that's the key question. Once we have that understanding, a right understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, what are we to do? 
Do we merely put it down to an interesting intellectual pursuit? Is it something reserved for the spiritual heavies of the church? For example, the pastoral team, uh, the elders and the executive? Are they the ones to do all the work of, of Christian life and ministry? And the rest of the congregation is just the spectators, you know, in the grandstands cheering on West Coast Eagles over Collingwood? Is that what the church is about? Or is there a challenge for all of us to consider how we may be better involved in the life, ministry and mission of God's church today? Is being part of the church more than just one hour on a Sunday and then having lunch? What are we 